I wish you guys could see the setup I have right now. <laughs> I really should do one of these with a video. I don't know why I haven't done that yet. Honestly, I don't really, it's a lot, it's a lot, honestly, to, to put into it. And for me, I'm like the eternal perfectionist, right? So for, when I'm doing these, especially when I'm running them myself, I'm spending like three hours just on the editing because I want to go through, make sure that there's not too long of pauses, make sure that all of the you knows and the ums, if it's excessive, I can cut those out and things like that. Just make it a better product for people. I, <laughs> But I'm sitting here on my bed with, I have this box looking thing that I use for soundproofing. It's got the you know, soundproof uh, styrofoam or whatever the, the material is called. And you kind of talk into the mic there. And I have it on a TV tray <laughs> on top of a, a like a cardboard box so it can fit. It's not so I'm not like look talking down to it and it'll help with the, the audio. So it's just it's funny, you know, thinking about where I started. I was doing essentially this the same way back then, not really knowing how to help with the soundproofing, not really knowing what to do in terms of the reverb off of the walls. You know, my rooms aren't exactly uh, automatically soundproof. My old room didn't even have a carpet, so everything was bouncing off of every surface, and so I figured this out eventually. But today is the is day two of the playoffs, the first round. We saw some pretty crucial game ones yesterday, but... Uh, it reminds me the way that everything is going right now. It reminds me of the first of the year in 2020 when me, Mike, and Mark were on the podcast talking about the preview to the season. And we we're talking about all like the first week, the first two weeks, all of these things, these storylines that, that we have. And even if, if you if you just go down the track list here, if you're looking at the podcast and you're seeing the different tracks, literally two or three ago, and obviously there's a pretty wide gap in between them, but you see like is Luka Doncic or is Luka, is Luka Magic really a thing that we're focused on right now? That was like the title of a of an episode. I mean the takes with a limited sample size, can be kind of out there. And I think there's a lot of those going on right now. Number one being this uh, this Nikola Jokic-led Denver Nuggets team who really did not, they didn't really play well last night, and Jokic didn't have a very good game. And I think Simmons had a good point about this. I, I will definitely, I definitely agree with that point. Um, this is the worst team in the playoffs right now besides Jokic. We can put so much of the onus on him to elevate this team, but the mediocrity around him, missing two, his two you know, co-stars you know, on this team and really just not having a lot of fallback. I mean, consider the fact that he averaged eight assists a game this year. If he had the talent that he is accustomed to having on that team being run the same way, you know, with Mike Malone at the helm, how many of those assists, those great passes that he made that were delivered to the hands of a, of a subpar player, a subpar shooter that didn't go through the basket because of that exact fact, how many of those would have turned into assists this year if it wasn't for that fact? Right? I mean, this is this is a wash year for the Nuggets. I think that they can kind of throw this away. They're not going to win a championship. They're not probably going to make it out of this round, if you, if you ask me. They don't really seem like the kind of talent that would be able to to really pull it together to make it out of the first round. But the thing that the game that I watched 
the most intently, the game that I made sure that I was gavel to gavel on, whistle to whistle, was, of course, that Grizzlies versus Timberwolves game. And uh, I do believe that this is going to be one of the most captivating series of, of this of this first round. Now, do I think that the Timberwolves have the staying power and the lasting power to get past the Grizzlies this year? I think that the first game really told us that that is a very, very likely fact. There's a chance that they could do this, right? But now you have uh, John Morant with a chip on his shoulder. You have uh, the upstaging, if you will, of the superstar that was supposed to be the biggest name in this in this uh, series. And now he's not anymore, right? Anthony Edwards is really taking that gavel from him. He's taking that torch from him this this series, and and we're seeing kind of it's crazy because both of these guys are under twenty three. I'm pretty sure like we're seeing like this back and forth of these two really young superstars, and one of them who is now on the world stage emerging as a superstar, the other one that we've known. Uh, I was talking about this, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, but. I, th- I think I did. Just the draw of Ja Morant right now. Playoffs are a different beast, right? Like every, It's going to be a sellout everywhere you go in the playoffs. But even during the regular season, he would go to a place like Orlando or uh, New Orleans or somewhere where basketball, the, the team, there might be a lot of fans there. And I think I, I can't really rope New Orleans into this anymore just because of the, the fervor that their fans came out during this play-in tournament. I think it was really commendable by the way, and I'll touch back on that for a second uh, as we go along because there were some weird Zion moments that I think everybody uh, has questions about, um, myself included. But he goes to these cities where there's a likelihood and a chance that he might be, the the, the stadium might be empty and somebody could sneak a, a fairly priced ticket to go and see John Morant play. But everybody's thinking that, right? This kid himself is the attraction, People line up to go see him play. He's selling out stadiums in cities where it doesn't typically sell out. And we all get to witness now in this playoff series, watching him on national television uh, every single game. I mean, as a League Pass subscriber, I got to watch him whenever I wanted, and it never fails. It never fails. So that's that's the thing about John Morant, and that is going to be the appeal of him for the next 10, 12 years, however long he can stay healthy, because I think there's another point to that that uh, really, really leads to a lot of work having to be done in the offseason. This style of play works for a 22-year-old, but this style of play is also the reason why Derrick Rose fell the way he did, right? I mean, Derrick Rose was very similar to this. He had a decent mid-range game he had a subpar three-point shooting game that improved as he got a little bit older but we what we what did we see from D-Rose we saw a fluid graceful but viciously athletic point guard who got to the basket at will rose up above the competition literally and either laid it up or threw it down on your face and and so that works for an MVP caliber year. That works for an actual MVP. Um, again, just to double back on my points that I've made on this multiple times, I don't know if he deserved it, but I think we were all just kind of tired of LeBron James at that point. So we gave it to D Rose because it was a cool year that we all got to witness. But it also led to numerous knee injuries. I mean, the 82 game season is grueling, 
and that will always be the case. There's never going to be a time, even if they cut down 10 games or, you know, get rid of, uh, implement like mandatory load management, whatever the case is to try to make sure these guys last longer in a season that lasts from October to April and playing in that season probably every third day in an 82-game spot, if you're healthy, you're probably playing 77 to 78 of those games. If you're not, 60 to 65, but you're rehabbing in that in that time off. So there is a legitimate toll being taken on these guys, especially if you go deep in the playoffs. If you're a good team, and this Grizzlies team is a good team, and if this isn't the year, they'll have a year all right, Bain, Dylan Brooks. I mean, Adams is only 20 fucking eight, guys. That's the crazy shit to me right now. It's like he's been in the league, I feel like, since I was in middle school. And I'm 28. But he's like 29, 28 years old. We're like the same age. You know, I mean, it does it does help that he's seven feet tall and has like a, like a Goliath beard and looks like Jason Momoa. It makes him look a little bit older, right? But at the same time, like there's years left on that guy. Like he has the way he plays that you don't, you don't ask much from him. He didn't, by the way, I'll I'll go into the game one. He didn't play well at all in game one. I think that he had one of his, his worst uh, contests in the playoffs, uh, probably of his career, but definitely of, of the recent past of his career. But I mean, you don't need too much from him and he's always going to be available. You have a power forward now in triple J who is a Defensive Player of the Year candidate. I don't think he'll win it, but I think that um, when he doesn't win it, there's going to be a lot of people on Twitter saying he should have won it and whatever. Just go back and forth and argue with yourselves on that one, I guess. But uh, ultimately, you have all of the pieces and the makings here of a legitimate finals contender. I personally think that the best thing that can happen for this Grizzlies team, because, I mean, after that first game, Watching how they were struggling with cohesion against the uh, equally as as uh, experienced inept Timberwolves team, who I mean they're just as young as the as the Grizzlies. They're the same, basically the same age. I think they're they're the the youngest and like second youngest teams in the league. If you play like that against a team like that, if you go into the next round and now you have to face you know potentially the the Warriors. Um, okay, well, good luck with that one. It's gonna be a tough. It's gonna be a tough one. I don't see them being a dark horse candidate. I don't see them being a legitimate candidate. You know, I just think that when it comes to seven game sets, playoff environments, none of us can, from a firsthand perspective, understand the pressure on these guys. But what we see from a secondhand experience is the fucking pressure on these guys, right? It's a completely different world. This isn't this isn't the the season anymore. This is seven games against the same players, potentially seven full games against the same players in a row. They figure you out. They understand how to stifle you for just a limited amount of time, and then they and then they just they do their business, right? So the Grizzlies don't don't get me wrong. Like they're a better team than the Timberwolves. You could see it just from the from the personnel and the coaching and and everything. The Timberwolves are a team right now that. 
Um, they have a lot of mistakes being made. They have an insanely inconsistent point guard in D'Angelo Russell, um, not as inconsistent of a center in Cat, and we saw that yesterday when he just absolutely torched them. No one really could could stop him. They didn't have an answer for him. But the the truth of this and the reality of the success of this Timberwolves team and the continued success of this Timberwolves team is completely contingent on the meteoric rise of Anthony Edwards. I remember watching, you know, this is the 2020 draft was an interesting one. It was obviously virtual. Uh, we had all seen the, the 2020 NFL draft where it was also virtual. We saw all of these things happening in that regard. And it was just, it was such an interesting dynamic of getting used to this virtual reality that we were all living in. But I remembered going down this list when everybody was getting drafted in 2020 and seeing all these guys going off of the board and seeing every single person just like bawling, you know, their eyes out. And then they get to LaMelo and he's just like, yeah, cool. Sick. Awesome. I'm on the harness now. And so my take on it, and if you go way back into the archives of these episodes, you'll, you'll hear me talking about it. I just don't, I didn't know if any of these guys gave a fuck about basketball, right? I mean, in today's age, if you are, uh, highly successful high school player you get your name out there already you get a ball is life fucking highlight tape at an aau game where you're just lighting up the other team and you get a million hits on that all of a sudden you got a hundred thousand two hundred thousand three hundred thousand instagram followers you're on tiktok you start doing dances in the locker room on tiktok you get really famous and then we have the NIL situation going on in college. So you go to college and now you can make money. So these kids are coming into the league. And, and I think Lamelo, obviously, we talked about this in the LeVar, the LeVar Ball episode and how much of a genius he was marketing his children. You know, Lamelo came into the league as the youngest of those three kids. And to be completely frank with you, like he didn't need basketball to be famous. He didn't need basketball to be rich. But what we're seeing, obviously, now is how much he likes the game. He loves playing basketball, and he's you know, continuously improving. He makes a ton, a ton of rookie mistakes. But the point of this is the number one pick in that draft, of course, was Anthony Edwards. And, and we were all thinking, I was thinking to myself, it's like, what is this kid going to be? Is he Larry Johnson? Is he a, a, a thicker D-Wade? He it didn't look like he could shoot all that well. I think we're I'm fucking wrong about that one. If I have made a take about that, if you guys go back into the the archives and hear me make a take on Anthony Edwards not being able to shoot, I'm sorry. Okay, you can call me a casual, I guess, for that one because we've been watching him just humiliating every single defender. They put Adams on him for a few different plays, and he just hits him with a mid range step back. Did it twice in a row. Almost hit it three times in a row. Right, and then you, and if you get too close on him because he's hitting the threes, like he's just barreling past you. He's so strong for his size. So what do you? I mean, really, what do you do? And it was clear in game one, uh, Memphis didn't have a single answer for him. They have size in their wing positions, and they're going to have to probably use it a lot better than they did in game one. And we saw also how important somebody like Patrick Beverly really is to to success. Right, you call him annoying, call him a nuisance. He wants to be that. Call him the villain. He wants to be the villain. That's why he's on the court. He's on the court to make you dislike him. That's why he's there, right? But what is he doing? He's creating an environment of competition for his team, 
right? He's developing these young guys into absolute savages who don't care about how the other team feels. And on top of that, he's also still, by the way, one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. So he's locking down the big names on Memphis. Now, you know, Ja was doing what he wanted to at will. He got to the basket a lot of times. We and, and just to go back to my go back to my point here, I mean, the way this guy's falling down, you know, backwards, his knees are collapsing and buckling. Like, there's a lot of problems on the way that he moves. That like. In the offseason, you're really going to have to – I think somebody's going to probably have to check him on some of these things. Like, yeah, dude, you're a freak athlete, but it's just not sustainable. It's not sustainable. I don't care if you're 185 pounds or whatever you know weight he is. He's you know super skinny, able to, to move at will throughout the, the paint, would have a Hall of Fame snake badge in, in 2K right now. It's But, yeah, that, and that's all well and good. But if you're running the risk every single time you go up to – to finish that you're going to land on someone's foot or you're going to, someone's going to follow you the wrong way. You're going to fall backwards on your knee or somebody's going to fall down in front of the basket on, you know, in front of your, your leg, just like we saw with Clint Capella, unfortunately, in that play in game against the Cavs. Like that's how you get hurt forever. That's how you change the trajectory of your career. And so how do you fix it? You develop your scoring ability from other positions, other places in the floor, right? So that mid-range game is the next up. He's got to turn into an Allen Iverson when it comes to that. You know, AI, the hard stop, and the second half of this entire episode is dedicated to guys like AI, so I'm just going to I'm gonna touch on this briefly, but if you saw the development of Allen Iverson as he got older, the, the obviously there was a hard stop in production after he had his second to third year in Denver, but before that... The way that he was able to sustain and the way that he was able to stay healthy and stay on the court and get the kind of minutes that he was getting is eventually he realized that getting to the basket wasn't in his best interest anymore, and he started to do a little step-back mid-range shot. I mean, it became a, a hallmark of his game was that was that step-back mid-range, crossover step-back mid-range. I mean, he would do that against everybody because you can take anybody off of the dribble just like Ja can. You have a, a phenomenal first step just like Ja does. And you realize that there's going to be a seven-footer standing there who is significantly heavier than you are. You're going to bounce off of this guy, and you're going to fall in a direction that you can't control. And you get hit enough times like that, then you're going to start to feel it. So we'll see what happens with him. But, I mean, obviously it's only game one. I don't have a take really on the way this game is going, this series is going. But what I do know is that Minnesota took one on the road. And that's a problem for Memphis. You know, you lost one on the, at home in front of your own people. That Minnesota crowd is absolutely, absolutely going to play a factor in, into game. And, you know, as they get out of Memphis, it was, it was very impressive. The excited nature of that Minnesota, of that Minnesota home, home stand there. Maybe a little bit too much. Saw a couple of these protests going on with the fucking owner and shit. It's like, guys, what do you really think is going to happen? You're just going to be annoying enough for us to just be like, okay, let's stop this owner from what? What is he doing? Is something about chickens? I don't know. Whatever. I'm, I'm not paying attention to it. But yeah, that, that series is going to go six minimum, in my opinion. Six or seven. Possibly seven. I mean, the, the Grizzlies now are backed into a corner because you can't lose again. These are your two home games, right? Next game is absolutely pivotal for them. 
And so we'll see what they do, how they how they show up. I think that you need a better game out of Adams. You need more boards offensively, if, especially out of Adams. You need to, you know, create more disruptions on defense. You have to be able to, you know, go straight up and down. You, you need to stop your guys from getting into foul trouble the way they were on both sides. That's how you know it's an inexperienced team, by the way. You know, these guys are used to an 82-game set where if you foul out of the game, like if you lose, yeah, it sucks, but it's not going to be the end of the world. And this, it becomes increasingly, exponentially more important for you to play smart, especially with fouls, right? So, you know, and these refs do not let them play anymore. I mean, it's very clear. You can't put a hand on them. You have to be increasingly more careful about what you're doing and and how how your hands are positioned and if you're going straight up and down as opposed to towards the player all that kind of garbage but that's the league that we're in today the most important series that we're going to see is going to be the sun series and it's going to be not not because of the ability for the pelicans to actually beat the suns but more so for us to witness phoenix's ability to put games away i mean that's really what they're strength was all season is when they get into the fourth quarter they really just put their hands around the necks of their opponents and just put them away right i mean we see 20 to 2 like 20 to 5 runs right in the in the fourth 14 to 3 runs out of nowhere we're seeing the the rise of devin booker we're seeing the layers and the levels to devin booker this year and and it really started with the times when Chris was hurt, you know, you get Chris Paul out of the game and it's like, okay, so what are we going to do at point guard campaign is there, but we really want to make sure that we have offensive production consistently, even when Chris Paul is out of the game. And so Devin took the reins as a point guard this year and he was, he was developing as a passer, six, seven assists a game. I mean, we're seeing this kid really come into his own and everybody wanted was going down the Kobe comparison route but I think there's another layer to to Devin Booker that really will take him away from uh, direct Kobe comparison yeah definitely he is a volume scorer he is a microwave type scorer he is going to get his shots off and he's going to hit a lot of them and and at the end of the game we're going to see him uh, probably on top of that scoring leaderboard uh, in most of these games it's just, I mean he's 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 able to easily get the ball out of his hands. He's very he's able to to utilize a lot of mid-range pieces. That's really where the the bread and butter of a lot of these high scorers has been, right? Is getting to the uh, foul line extended area, baseline um, and being able to hit turnarounds and and take somebody off of the dribble and, and stop on a dime and all of those things. Pick your spots really appropriately. I mean, that's what the elite guys do. And he's turning into one of those if he's not already. I think that it's kind of, it's a little. I'm a little bit antiquated to say that he he hasn't already become one of the premier scorers in the league. I mean, the man dropped 70, even though they they sucked, right? I mean, 70 point games. If you ever watch one, watch the tape of one, like the 81 pointer, or like the David Robinson 71 pointer, or you know even Devin 70 pointer. Like they really they really suck to watch. Like, it's cool to watch to see, like, one guy is going off. But when you get to that level of scoring, there's no way in an efficient game without just having the ball force-fed to you all game to really, like, put those kind of numbers up. 
right? You can score 50 in an actual game. You can score even 60 in a game where you're you're just going off, right? If you're just going off, then yes, you can put up those numbers. But when you get into the 70 range, like those few games that it's ever cross into that threshold, like they get really kind of cringy almost to watch, right? And that, that was kind of what it was back then. But it really was just a testament to what this kid could do. And he's been just doing it quietly. If they didn't put this kind of team around him, I don't think he would be in Phoenix anymore. I think if, if anybody remembers, I mean, it wasn't more than two years ago that we saw um, this, this Suns team in the bubble win all eight games, still miss the playoffs in the bubble. And we were all thinking to ourselves, well, Devin Booker should probably look other places. I don't think they're going to do this for him. I don't think he's going to get the wins that he wants here. He's a competitive guy. I don't know if he really wants to be on a team that's going to play this poorly all the time. But what we saw as we went forward was a player who kept his mouth shut, kept his head down, a front office that was competent enough to get a player like Chris Paul and a team that started to really blow up two seed last year and now of course the one seed this year could have been the one seed last year but the jazz had one of those weird years where they just went off so the biggest storyline about this about this series this 1-8 series is going to be where does zion fit into the equation in new orleans if if the pelicans play well and take a game or two from the suns we're really going to be considering if they are potentially better without Zion Williamson. It's an insane notion, by the way, everybody. I have made it a point to mention this every single episode for the last probably four or five months, probably all season. Zion Williamson is still one of the elite talents in the league, but it's more of the issues with the team cohesion that we saw this year. The C.J. McCollum getting traded to... Norlands and Zion is doing his own thing and doesn't even reach out to say hello to him. Right? CJ having to call him out to get him just to talk to him. The videos of him dunking on the ther- on the uh, the rehab floor first, you know, the one with a little bit of give in the practice facility and then eventually in in pregame, you know, I think that that was a ridiculous PR stunt either by the Pelicans or by Zion himself. I don't know why they did that because now we're all just seeing what we've all kind of assumed all year. It's like, yeah, I think he's good to go. I think he's been good to go for probably a couple months here. I'm not a trainer. I'm not a rehab specialist. I'm not a physical therapist. But if you have your guy who's been out since you know the end of last season and he's 21 and he is able to do a, a windmill off of the backboard, um, there's a good chance he could probably play right now. That I mean, again, I I don't know what the ins and outs of it are. I'm sure they're looking at the investment standpoint here. But if you're going to have your guy out there in, in layup lines and doing things like that, then probably make an announcement about his availability or lack thereof and the reasons why. Now everyone's wondering. It's like, why is he still on the low-low about his status? And yet every time we're seeing him, he looks fine. He's not limping he doesn't look like he's in pain at all he's dunking like he used to but he's not playing so is it that he doesn't like the team is it a Kawhi and San Antonio situation where he's just going to milk this until they get rid of him right he's coming up on a a max contract year do they offer him the max is he I mean he's killing his own free agent stock 
at least in New Orleans, right? Like if you go somewhere else, they're going to pay you well. I mean, I, I, as a Knicks fan, you know, I have my fingers crossed behind my back that he comes to New York. But ultimately, it's, it's like he's going to be a sought-after target. But what are you doing to your stock by sitting all season? Again, I doubt that it's his call at this point, right? I'm sure he wants to play and, and shut the haters up because there's been a lot of them. And when we see him back, we're going to realize just how amazing that one-two punch of the 2019 draft is because you know, I just went into jaw in innate detail before, and Zion is still Zion. He's still going to do what he does. He doesn't need to dunk over you to get points. He's just stronger than you are. Anybody on the court, you know? I mean, that's that's why where he gets his points from. If you watched him on League Pass last year, you saw that. He wasn't a high flyer in games all the time. He, and, and honestly, in games, a lot of times, he's he's more below the basket than anything else. He's just, you know, back down, back down bully, little turnaround, go up with his shoulders, basically just into you. And if you try to stop him, he's not going to be, you're not going to get the ball out of his hands. You're not going to block it. He's going to get the shot off when he wants to and probably out of your hands reach. He, and he did that for at the tune of about 27 points a game last year. So it's like, that's Zion. That's what we know he's capable of. The issue is he's played 82 games in three seasons. Obviously one of those was shortened or two of those, sorry, was shortened because of COVID, but this year was not, and he didn't play a single game. So we'll see where he goes or what happens there. But again, if the Pelicans play well without him and they have a good roster without Zion attached to it, right? They have their premium scorer in BI. You know, now they have their number two guy in CJ. They have the pesky defenders in Alvarado. They have Herb Jones, who's able to, you know, really lock down anybody from one to three, four in that range. So, and Willie Green's been coaching them really, really well all season. So, you know, I mean, it's not going to be the end of the world if Zion decides that he's, like, not fit for gumbo, jambalaya and all the, all the bad food in, in New Orleans and gets out of there, goes to a bigger market and starts starts the career over, right? It's, it's, but it's going to be up to him to be able to stay healthy to make sure that he doesn't turn into a monumental bust, right? At this point, it's about how are you treating your lower appendages you already know that they're at risk so how are you treating them how are you going to walk different how are you going to run different these are all really important questions that he's going to have to answer here in the near future so we'll see what he does the biggest story that always goes behind a team that chris paul is on is Always. I mean, the man is 36, right? I mean, he's been in the league since I was in elementary school. And the truth of Chris Paul right now is that every single team that he's ever been on has been better for him being on it. And uh, we didn't see that as readily in Houston, I think predominantly because of who he was playing with. James Harden's a hard guy for a true point guard to play with because of the fact that you're really going to be standing around watching him. But then he goes to Oklahoma City in the post-Russell Westbrook era, and all of a sudden now this team is a four and a five seed, and they're playing the best basketball that they played and before and since. And then he goes to the Suns, a floundering Suns team that we just again watched win eight straight games in the bubble and still miss the playoffs. And all of a sudden now this is not just the one seed in the West, but by a wide margin the best team in the league, a historically good team at this point, and a very good chance that this team 
bulldozes their way to the finals. Now, we've always we've been wrong before, but here's where you start to see consistencies in the NBA game. The teams that have been there before, those are the teams that can take you out in the fourth quarter. The Suns have shown that they can take anybody out in the fourth quarter. The fact that they close games, that's the danger of the Phoenix Suns. It's not the fact that they've won 65 games. So did the Kings in 02. They won 65 games. The Suns didn't in, in 06, 07. I mean, those, those teams were phenomenal teams. But the structure of those teams was not conducive for a championship. But this one, this is the most dangerous Suns team that we've ever seen. Any other iteration that we've seen in the past, all of those teams came up short. This Suns team, this is going to be a problem for anybody to face. And it all starts, and it's always started, with Chris Paul, who, after you know, the thumb injury this year, I mean, he's, been, he's had in and out injuries. His shoulder's been giving him problems for the last few years. He's older. He's getting to the end of his career, and he still is chasing that first title. That's how elusive it can be for some of these guys, right? He's too good of a player to truly be chasing that title for the remainder of his career. I do believe this is the year he gets it. And it all starts with him, and then it goes to Booker. And I know Booker is is the MVP of this team. He has risen his game up to meet any demands that are needed for this team to be successful. DeAndre Ayton is right there as well with him. You have the new Iron Man, the new Michael Cooper and, and Miguel Bridges, uh, and, and ultimately just a, a, a team of consistency, a team of consistency and a, a team of chemistry. They know each other now. They're uh, accustomed to each other now. This Basically, this entire team, the way it's constructed today, is the same way that it was constructed in the finals last year, right? Missing a couple pieces here and there, but ultimately, overall, this is the same basic team with a lot more uh, talent and a lot of growth in the individual players. So, that's where the danger comes in, and, and it cannot be minimized. It can't be minimized how important it is to go to the finals and have that experience. And for a team like this, a guy like Chris Paul, who at this point, I mean, had made it as far as he had gone in the finals, as close as he had come to getting that first title and missing it, and knowing that he's on borrowed time at this point, it's coming to an end. He's almost done. This is going to be a very dangerous team, you know. And I think at the end of this, and I believe that uh, we, and it's been a while, right, 30 years we're going to see a requiem for the little man here. The little man in the NBA who has been the most minimized player <laughs> forever. The little guy who, despite significant talents over the seven decades of this league, regardless of the era in which he played, has always been looked over. I can't stop making these puns, I'm sorry. And has always had a hard time winning a championship by himself. Anybody has a hard time winning a championship by themselves, but it's hard to construct a team around a little guy. And I think we can go all the way back to talk about a guy like Tiny Archibald in the 70s. You know, the, the only player who's ever averaged, led the league in, in, in scoring and assist averages, not anymore the only player to lead the league in both points and assists, because Trey Young did that this year. Another classic example of the little man and I think uh, again a new wave of little guys who very likely could become uh, very dangerous in their own right 
and competitive in the league here to come. You know, Nate Archibald obviously never really saw a lot of success outside of Boston. He went to the Celtics and was able to be successful there, but not when he was not when he was on the Kings by himself. Successful in statistics, unsuccessful in wins. That's what we've seen. The example that contrasts that opinion, of course, is Isaiah Thomas, but look at the team he was with, right? Joe Dumars, Dennis Rodman in his early years, consistent contributors from Mark Aguirre, Bill Lambeer, you know, a really rough and tumble, bad boys persona for that entire team, coached by the legendary Chuck Daly. It required this team to play at its highest level at all times because of who they were trying to get through to get to the finals. That Celtics team obviously won multiple championships throughout the 80s, and so they had to be able to outpace them. And then, of course, the uh, the emergence of Michael Jordan in the late in the late 80s as well. Now he has Scottie Pippen too. It's a tough conference to get out of. And so the little man, the team constructed around him, was able to do that. And I think for a team to build around a guy like Isaiah Thomas, it required a specific skill set for him and a specific type of type of personality i mean think about this if you consider the way that dogs behave right when i was a kid uh, i had a, a norwegian elk count and he was much bigger than my cousin's dogs which are all shih tzus right and yet the shih tzus scared the shit out of my dog all the time they barked and they jumped and they snapped and all of the above and they had to have that behavior as a defense mechanism. It's their instincts. Their instinct is to be dickish, right? They're looking up at all of their opponents. They have to have something inside of them that tells them that they are on equal footing as these people who are six, seven, eight inches taller than they are. They have an advantage that the little man doesn't have. And Isaiah had that in spades. And he readily gave it away to other players who needed it as well. And I think that because you know, the next example that we have of this is one Allen Iverson. Seven years later, after the first Bad Boys Championship, we have a draft in which a, a guy who's listed at six feet tall, which I think is the funniest shit I've ever heard in my life. If you see Allen Iverson, he's definitely no taller than 5'10". 165 pounds and carried the weight of an entire Philadelphia franchise on his back for upwards of 10 years. How difficult was it for him? You know, I mean, his style of play, again, very similar to James Harden in the sense that it's like if you're playing with him, you probably don't have a lot of fun. His usage rate was off the charts. He would dribble as you watched him. <laughs> and he had the most mediocre, te- mediocre team. And he had the most mediocre team to ever make a finals, make the finals. They just happened to run into the most powerhouse Lakers team of the early 2000s. You know, they, they might have taken the finals if it wasn't for that. I mean, the East at that time, was that was right after expansion. So we had a lot of new teams in the East. And so a lot of the, the player talent pool was dissipating. And so the East was really going through a tough time. And we had a back-to-back Nets finals team. Like, let's get real here, guys. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy, right? They obviously didn't win either of them, but that just showed the way that the East was situated back then. And they're um, honestly, they're just now coming out of mediocrity from the five, six, seven, eight spots now. This is the best Eastern Conference that we've had in about 25 years. Allen Iverson, five foot 11, I'll give it to him. 
the little man. They construct a team around him, but his style of play was not conducive to being able to win a championship. I mean, there's a lot of points being had by a guy like that. There's a lot of success statistically. There's an MVP award in it for him. He's probably the biggest game changer in terms of the culture of the NBA. And I think, you know, it's important for all of us NBA fans today who see the connection between societal norms and NBA norms and the culture of the NBA and the, the accessibility of players for the, in, for the average individual today. Yes, internet definitely played a massive part in that. But if it wasn't for a guy like Allen Iverson, it would have taken a lot longer for that connection between hip-hop and society and the NBA to take place, especially with a guy like David Stern as a commissioner. It would have taken a while, right? And he did everything he could to stifle Allen Iverson himself. I mean, uh, when I was a kid in middle school being on modified basketball, we all had the shooting sleeves on our arms, Right? We all wore those because of Allen Iverson. Right? We all had headbands on because of Allen Iverson. You know, the tattoos, everything about him just like was cool. We all wanted to be like him. He was just such a dominating presence and such a little guy. Right? That's the kind of personality that you need. And Chris Paul has everything that you need to be a successful little man, but he's been failed over and over again by, I think, organizations. Now, we cannot completely blame those around him, right? I mean, the collapse on the Clippers against the Rockets, that was on him. You know, I mean, it was one of the worst couple minutes from an all-star caliber player in an elimination game that I've seen, and that's an important knock on his resume. However, everything else has led to us realizing how successful and how important a player like that is to your team, right? He's mean. You don't want to play against a guy like Chris Paul. He's an asshole, right? He's going to chirp at you. He's going to do everything in his, in his power that he can get away with to make sure that he has an advantage over you. People don't like him. If you play against him, you don't like Chris Paul, and that's okay with Chris Paul. He's had to live... As a six foot tall, I mean six foot tall. Again, like when they're listed as six feet tall, just very similar to like guys on dating apps and shit. If they say they're six feet tall, ladies probably five nine, five ten. I think Chris Paul is probably five ten, five eleven with shoes on. Very small, right? But he uses every ounce of his height to be able to get shots off. He uses vision effectively. He uses his height to be able to be underneath defenders or underneath the guys on offense so they don't always know where he's coming from when he's going for steals right he's got a wide base he's got the ability to stop the ball he has so much talent and so much uh, he's so effective as a point guard that at some points it really doesn't even matter about how tall he is and this is going to be the requiem for a little man like Chris Paul I think if anybody says anything different then we're watching a different team you're watching the Suns from 2020. I'm watching them from 2022. These are two completely different franchises. The Suns team has staying power because they've been to the finals. They had to break through in order to be able to be considered an actual threat. That's the problem we run into, right? right? This Heat team right now is the number one seed in the East. 
and yet literally nobody considers them to be a finals caliber team. They've been to the finals. The The construct of this team has been to the finals. Now, can we really consider the bubble finals of finals? Not really. There's so many aspects of being home in front of fans and the arenas and the travel and all that stuff that takes a toll and adds to home court advantage and all of these things that if you go to a finals like this, then you have to really consider this team to be successful. However, there's a reason why the Suns are so wildly favorited to win this championship. And it all has to do and starts with the little guy, with Chris Ball. Right? And I, I, I encourage anybody who doesn't watch the Suns or maybe doesn't watch too much basketball um, or hasn't watched a lot this year to catch a couple of these first games because you're going to see it. I mean, the motivation for Chris right now is otherworldly. I don't think anybody else has more pressure on them. We won't talk about it with him. You know, he's so close to the end of his career, but internally he has the most pressure on himself. This is the last bit for him. I mean, how high does he ascend if he wins a championship? How far does he go up the ranks? Many people already consider him the greatest point guard or a top three point guard of all time. I think Magic will always probably have the pedestal of a true point guard, right? Isaiah's right there, but the difference is they both have championships. You give one to Chris, and it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't matter when it comes to greatness how many championships when you're just talking about vying for a position, obviously it will. But as long as you get one, you jump guys who don't. Right? Charles Barkley was one of the most enigmatic superstars ever. Ever. Watch some of his tape. No one could understand how this man who looks like this could run like that and jump like that and do that and do those things. But he did. But he doesn't have a championship. Stockton Malone. Talk about fading into obscurity, probably intentionally for both of them. I think when Carl Malone realized the internet was probably going to expose him pretty quickly, he just like fucked off right away. <laughs> the greatest tandem ever, statistically. Right? They played for, what, 18 years together. The points they've had together, the assists, the, all this, the numbers that they've put together. Doesn't matter. Don't have a championship. Got stifled by Jordan twice. These are things that we pay attention to, and that's why the playoffs are so important. Right, Giannis has the burden off of his shoulders already. He's only 26, 27. But a guy like Chris, he's been fighting for it his whole life. And this is it for him. I mean, I, I truly think that there is going to be internal motivation inside that, that son's locker room. That's the scary thing for somebody who's playing against him, is that even though they're a one seed, they have so much to prove that it's not good enough. And they're going to come out like dogs. And we'll see. I'll try to jump on next week to cover some some of those games. Maybe I'll get get Mark on this a little bit. But ultimately, this shit's about to go down, and I'm here for it.